Welcome to the Association Advisor podcast. We're glad you've joined us for a conversation around best practices, news, and leadership strategies for association professionals. I'm Kelly Clark. And I'm Katie Brown. We're happy to welcome back Sharon Newport, Executive Director for the Door Security and Safety Foundation and Director of Operations for the Door and Hardware Institute for today's episode. Sharon continues our conversation about association leadership and how great leaders are nurtured within organizations that make leadership training and knowledge transfer part of their organizational culture. Leading associations are firmly grounded in their mission, and while they might adopt some of the latest leadership or staff development trends, they stay firmly grounded in their why so they don't lose sight of the leadership or succession goals they're striving for. Sharon is studying to take the Certified Association Executive Exam this year and is learning a lot about what makes a great leader and how associations can nurture and support their leadership. We're so glad she can make time to share what she's learning about leadership with us. But first, a message from our sponsor, Naylor Association Solutions. For almost 50 years, Naylor has helped build strong trade and professional associations by powering solutions that connect members and earn non-dues revenue. We offer a blend of communication, event, and software solutions that no other company can match. We're Naylor, and we're passionate about helping your association achieve more. Visit our website at www.naylor.com. Sharon Newport is the Executive Director of the Door Security and Safety Foundation and the Director of Operations at the Door and Hardware Institute. She is an ASAE Diversity Executive Leadership Scholar and a visionary leader who is passionate about working in a mission-driven environment and being an agent for change. A former actress and documentary writer and producer, Sharon embraces change leadership for its power to create collaborative and inclusive cultures, as well as strategic change for an organization. Welcome back to the Association Advisor podcast, Sharon. We're really glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Us too, us too. So we'll dive right in. You study change leadership, and you study what makes an effective leader in the association world and beyond. And on this episode, we want to talk about how leaders build their leadership knowledge and skills and then transfer all that. Where would you start with that? What kind of what components to that do you think are important for associations to consider and plan for? Yeah, that's a big question for a lot of us these days. Um, I know that succession and transition and culture are a a big thing on association leadership minds. And I think, you know, where I'm partnering with a leader to say, so what are some of your objectives and goals in trying to transfer knowledge in your organization? It's very possible a lot of association leaders don't have a formal process around that now. And so I would invite a leader to consider what should that look like, not only inclusive of their role, which is the traditional form of succession planning is the CEO or the executive director, but also within the organization itself. What is the succession plan for your leadership team? Were you to lose a key leader, you know, with 30 days notice, what is your succession plan around that? What organizational documents and knowledge is being transferred on a regular basis? And I would want to explore it on a cultural level, not just a project level. I think oftentimes those kinds of succession planning things are considered projects. But I think to your point around the premise of knowledge transfer and skills transfer, that is something you could adopt within your culture. What are you doing to make sure that there is not only cross-functional training going on, but what is, what is the indoctrination process for helping those who are maybe at a manager level grow into leadership? 
and what are some of the processes for helping those um, in the lower end of the organization that are maybe newer or maybe new to the workplace and helping them to be able to grow within the organization and what is the investment in them as a whole versus just in the context of your org. And so I think some of that's a cultural question and there's a lot of ways in which that can be implemented every single day. And there are some other ways in which it needs to be implemented much more formally, perhaps on the annual review process. I've heard of organizations implementing succession plans with their leadership team in the context of their annual review. And as part of someone's self-assessment, for example, they could be implementing, so for my succession plan, if someone were to come next from me, here's what I would do to train them, or here's what the organization can do without me, or here's where the key documents are, or, you know, building that plan as part of their annual self-assessment. It, it can happen in a lot of different ways, but to your point, that knowledge transfer and that building of um, succession in the organization, I think is a cultural step first before it becomes more of a project. Completely agree. Talking some more about association culture, you've given us an example of how the culture of passing down knowledge can be formalized through a tool like an annual review. What are some other tools you've seen associations or boards use to ingrain the idea of knowledge transfer into the culture of their association? Well, I think on a board level, it's about what is coming into those board meetings and the ways in which you normalize the transfer of knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge in the board, in the board culture. So how are you onboarding a new board member into the board itself? What does that onboarding process look like for them? And then what is normalized as part of the regular agenda and the regular communication process, inclusive of staff to board, to be able to bring, we're, we're at the part of the agenda where we're going to learn more about trends, or we're going to learn more about best practices, or we're going to learn more about an environmental scan that's come, you know, there could be a, it could look like a lot of different things depending on the organization. But I think that is something that has to be normalized and part of the process in order for it to be regularly adopted. And I think the same goes true with staff. Some staff are constantly looking to jazz up that staff meeting and what are some ways in which additional members of staff can facilitate the meeting. It doesn't always have to be facilitated from the leader or maybe there's a section where you sign up to be able to say, hey, I'm going to teach a 10-minute quick knowledge tip on how to improve our engagement on social media or how to do this change management process or use this bit of project management software or I have a solution for that thing we're all having trouble with on so-and-so and I'm going to present it in the meeting. And so giving everyone a chance to engage, facilitate, be some sort of thought leader within the organization, say, hey, I have a really important piece of knowledge. I get asked this question all the time and I'd love to give five, ten minutes in the next staff meeting on how X goes. And I think what it does is it allows for one, Knowledge and culture is up to all of us. It allows for a different level of attention and engagement. It's not just a staff meeting where everyone's regurgitating the same topics over and over again, but hopefully that you come to learn and you come to be fed and you come to be supportive of each other since someone might be more nervous to present than another person. I think it brings about a lot of opportunities. So I think on a very simplistic level, that could be one way of doing it. When looking up culture and things that leaders do to create innovative cultures, there's way more exciting things than that. But it looks like a lot of different things. And I think 
one of the key points is that whatever is brought to the table is brought as not just a one-off or we're going to do this, but then you don't really maintain it. I think it's much more important that whatever is brought to the table gets incorporated on a cultural level, on a normalized level, and that you're the consistent leader of this happening. I think that's when the culture and the staff and the board can turn to you and trust that this is, this is our new normal, this is how we're going to do it, and I can trust them to walk me through how this is going to go well. What they bring to the table works for us. And if for some reason it's not, I can trust they're going to help us address that so that we can improve and we can grow. So I think the sustainability of it and the listening to how it's going and adjusting to make sure that it's working is more important than the tactic that you choose. That is a great point. That kind of leads into a question that Kelly and I had for you. When we think of our favorite leaders who are always on the leading edge of these leadership trends, it seems like they always seem to know what's coming up next in terms of progressive workplace culture or the newest, best way to build a strong team, how they provide inspiration to their teams to work to their top potential. And it always seems like they're doing these interesting things to build up leadership skills, maybe holding a retreat in some unconventional place or doing some kind of team building activity that might be out of the norm from the usual activities that we think of when we think of lame workplace <laughs> team building. <laughs> And maybe maybe it's reading a book that, that doesn't necessarily fall on the top 10 New York Times best business book list. Um, do you think it's those out-of-ordinary practices that make someone a great leader? Or do you think, to the point you just made, that that could potentially be a leadership kind of fad or trend? What What is your take on that? Like how uh, Kelly and I were just sitting there thinking, how do they come up with all these great ideas? You know, I I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but... I think you're right that it is very appealing when, as an employee, that your leader brings cool things to the table. That's super exciting for a lot of people. But I do think that it's not always ideal to follow a trend. I think it needs to be an authentic aspect of employee engagement that they're trying to support. And so to your point, I think it's incumbent upon all leaders to stay really current and fresh on all kinds of trends, including culture, leadership, training, employee engagement. All of those things are really important, but it is super important to not go squirrel and turn towards the next thing and then turn towards the next thing and turn towards the next thing. It's one thing to say, I want to keep it fresh and I want to try new things. It's another thing for the culture to be ready for that. And so, again, you know, making sure that whatever it is that you as the leader want to build in the culture of your organization is authentic and possible in the staff that you have. And the willingness for a leader to try new things and that the staff is watching them say, hey, I know that you know, it's challenging for us to have more time to learn or to have more bandwidth for X or we're, we're all wanting to know more about so-and-so and so let's take a class together. I'll bring someone in and we can do that. There's lots of ways to do it that fulfill strategy need. But if we're looking for the sake of building, say, a culture of learning as just a principle of the organization or building a culture of engagement around X, Y, or Z and around different topics, I think it's really important for the leader to make sure that it's tied to a why. Otherwise, I think it can look like a trick in your bag and not look like an authentic solution 
or opportunity for the staff member. And if the staff member doesn't see it tied to the why, that it's just, it doesn't resonate in the same way, and it's probably not going to have a lasting effect. So tying it to the why and the mission and the culture of the organization, I think, is what's critical and, and, a, and a good lens of discernment for the leader. And that could be using tried and true employee engagement methods. Retreats can be really cool for the organization that never gets to do one, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but yeah. for the organization that constantly gets to do them, like, oh, how are you going to reinvent that if that becomes an important thing to do, but they need it to be fresh? So what does that look like? And that probably ties back to their why. Great point. As you were speaking there, I was thinking, you know, if if you are a quote-unquote leader that's following all of the leadership trends, you aren't then necessarily leading if you're not coming right. from that authentic place where you're thinking of your team and what's relevant for you. And I also think you made a really important comment earlier when you were talking about the fact that, you know, you can you can come up with all of these great leadership ideas and you know, ways to to shift and grow your association's culture. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't stick with it and stay the course and Mm -hmm. stick to whatever that process is going to be, it it can fall flat and and come off as, you know, inauthentic of a type of whatever that leadership is that you're, you know, trying to carry your team through. If you're not sticking with it past the retreat, past, you know, the day that you guys go to some education sessions or whatever, it can it can all kind of fall apart and be for naught. And I think that's a really important comment you made. That's exactly right. And I think, a, you know, a key aspect to what those of us who are CAEs or studying to become a CAE, there's a, an acronym that we all learn called SPIE, S-P-I-E, Scan, Plan, Implement, and Evaluate. So they've implemented this new retreat. What are they doing to evaluate how it's going after we go home? And then what are they doing to scan again to decide how we continue to implement that and plan how to continue? So there needs to be an ongoing iterative process to all of this because I think what's also key to sticking with it is that if something is not working, that you're evaluating it well enough and brave enough to maybe admit it was implemented differently than it needs to be. And it needs a tweak. It needs a change. It needs some shift. And I think keeping your finger on the pulse of that evaluation and not being the leader that says it's got to be like this and we've got to stick with it like this, fundamentally, as long as you're conscious of how it's actually going and being willing to shift as you move forward, that's part of the sticking with it. For sure. I think there's there's no lesson quite like failure or how you respond to failure. So I think the abil- yeah. the ability to pivot is crucial, especially in the world we live in now where everything seems to move so fast, you've really got to be able to kind of think on your feet and, to your point, have the tools ready to analyze, okay, is this working? Do we need to make a shift? Do we stay the course? Because sometimes you stick with it way too long and then look back and you're like, gosh, I could have pulled the plug on this or pivoted six months ago. Yes, (laughs) yes. I think that's part of what makes a good leader for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the other benefit of that is you're modeling for your staff how to do that because you probably would like them to be willing to do the same and learn the same skill. And so if they can see you say, hey, let's just admit 
isn't working and we all gave our best effort, what would be what would be a way to address this? I mean, that's, you know, assuming it's coming in a form of collaboration, how could we tweak this to make it better? And modeling for them, the same thing you'd want them modeling for your leadership team, what you'd want to do with your staff or how it is you're going to address the board. I think that's an important thing to show your team. I totally agree. And speaking of collaboration and modeling behavior you'd want your staff to adopt, even great leaders don't always know what to do when change is needed. They don't always have the resources from within to create the change that is needed. So what is your opinion, rather, on leaders seeking outside resources? Do you think this is something that association leaders should do more or something that they do well already? Um, I, I'm a firm believer that we all need support and partnership from outside of ourselves from time to time. I think it's important to know yourself as a leader enough to know, be mindful enough of your skills to know this organization needs X and I don't know if I know how to navigate that. I need to find either some expertise or a partner or a coach or someone who's been there before. What I think is great about the association space is I do think that's a normalized thought process. What is critical in that moment, though, is that the leader is capable of knowing themselves enough to know when that moment is here. And then where do they turn? Hopefully, they've built enough of a network to at least have a colleague, a trusted colleague, they can have that conversation with. And through their network, they can be connected to someone that they can trust based on their specific scenario. I don't think that leadership can grow in a vacuum. I don't think that change can be done well in a vacuum. And so around the premise of the question, being the leader of change, I think it's critical and important to have that, but it, it doesn't always need to look like the same thing in every context. So for example, if your board has said that as part of the next strategic plan, you need to draw about um, some diversity and inclusion initiatives, and this is a territory that maybe makes you nervous, maybe you've never had to be the leader of that kind of change. I would like to think the board would have identified the details of what that looks like in the context of their, um, their community. But they might say, gosh, I don't know how to be the leader of that, even though I believe in it and I want to implement it and I want to do it. So seek out some, some counsel from experts on that process. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're interacting with your staff. It could be about shoring you up as the leader and helping you navigate a process separately from your team. But it could also include helping them get inside of the culture and the structure of the organization and being a part of a process that maybe lasts for a duration. Usually when a leader needs support in that way, it's in a long-term need and that you need some someone with some objectivity about you and some objectivity about the initiative and maybe even some expertise to help you get there. You've mentioned building up a network of trusted colleagues that you can turn to when you need help in an area of leadership that you're not altogether familiar with. Do you think of this primarily in terms of mentoring? So we hear about how important it is, but at the same time, it also seems like it's not something that many people do, at least not formally. We've looked up some stats from the Association of Talent Development. They say that 71% of Fortune 500 companies do offer formal mentoring programs and that they tend to work, that people who participate in them tend to hold better and better job titles over time. 
But then we also see that a much smaller percentage of smaller businesses, um, less than 50%, have formal mentoring programs. So, you know, I just wonder, is, is mentoring the, way, the only way to go when it comes to building that network or are there other ways to build up that support net that you're talking about here? Yeah, I, um, lots of good things in there that I want to get at. So help me along here so I don't forget them. But I want to cover how the transition and the premise of building your own network as a leader and, and almost backing into your own history. So did that come from your ability to benefit from mentoring? Um, is kind of how I'm perceiving part of that thought process. And I think we can look back and see that whether it was formal or informal, many of us have had some sort of mentoring along the way. Sometimes it's your boss. Sometimes it's a family member who has been in that industry or you know something willing to advise you on business or something like that. But I think there is incredible value to being able to learn from those who have done it and who have been there and are willing to connect with you enough to invest. I like the term people pouring into you. Um, Ironically, I heard that a lot with Oscar speeches. I feel like people said, I'm the product of people who have poured into me. And I think we all owe that to each other. I think that friends do it with each other, but I think there's value in the business world and the association space to be able to look back and support those who are coming up because um, we've all needed it at some point. And when you do it consciously for others, um, speaking from the leader to supporting maybe younger and up and coming folks, or maybe someone who's in your organization who could use a little support around maybe even a process, even if it's not a longer term dynamic, I think it's critical. Now, in terms of building your network and, and how that could go, I think that it doesn't always come from the mentor. I think the thing with mentoring is that you're sometimes supporting somebody's need to grow and they just need a little encouragement. Sometimes it's directly giving them knowledge about things, helping them teach them how to think, how to navigate their own self in the context of others to become self-managed in a way that is leaderly. But sometimes it also looks like sponsorship. And to me, the difference between a mentor and a sponsor is someone who is also going to provide opportunity. They want to connect you with people. They want to bring you in the room with the right folks, whatever that looks like. They want to maybe help you get the next job. They want to make sure that you are surrounded by certain kinds of opportunities. Mentoring and sponsoring to me are different. And they can be from the same person but they're not always the same thing. So you might get a mentor who is the CEO of something, 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 and is a huge association, but they're not maybe wanting to invest in the network component. They might want to invest in the knowledge component or maybe supporting you in your personal growth in the context of industry component. So I think it can look in different ways. I think those organizations who, in the stat you mentioned, that are the smaller orgs and they're not maybe having as many formal mentoring processes, my best guess on that one is that, and, and I come from a smaller organization myself, is that our resources are smaller. And most of the time, we're all doing more with a little less. And sometimes those of us are leaders are also doing things right down to the tactics because that's what smaller orgs do. And sometimes it's about being bold enough to just step out and engage and, and ask for a relationship and, and bring something to the table. I think the other thing that is very intrinsic 
to association professionals is that we understand the premise and the value of volunteering. So show up to ASAE and volunteer your time and get inside of a community where you can meet other professionals and be able to show who you are and support others and who they are and collectively build something and earn the trust of a community and go from there. I think uh, we all know that move when we're all so busy in our own orgs, it can be hard to remember, let me come up out of this and find a way to engage with Association Forum or ASAE or my state SAE. Those are ways in which you can directly empower yourself and engage and bring, frankly, skills to the table for yourself that you maybe could never get inside of your org based on being a small staff. Yeah, and I agree that in the day-to-day grind of a job, it is easy to forget that the way you grow professionally and personally is to have the motivation to seek out additional resources or advice from others, as well as be mindful of sharing what you do have with others who don't yet have that. In the grind, it's easy to forget that. However, I think those two characteristics, striving for more as well as giving back more than what you've received are two hallmarks of great leaders. Um, So it's nice to be reminded of that. I'm intrigued about the idea of sponsorship and how it differs from mentoring. It seems like they're very similar in that both are types of professional relationships where people are, are, are challenging you from the position where you are. But can you tell us more about how sponsorship differs from mentoring? Sure, yeah. I think the the fundamental difference of sponsorship and mentoring is kind of in the definition of the word, but let me illustrate it further. So mentoring to me is about knowledge and providing knowledge. Sponsorship is about providing opportunity. So just because I'm your mentor doesn't mean I'm going to open my network to you. It doesn't mean I'm going to invite you in the room with certain people. It doesn't mean I'm going to bring you along as my plus one to awards events and (laughs) um, networking events, right? It doesn't always mean that. Um, But I think that's that extra level. And I, people need to be careful about that. Obviously you, you want to introduce people to your network that you can believe in at that level. But sometimes it is really important to mentor the person that's not ready for that room but you want to help them get there, and that's why you're investing in them. So I see them as two different things, and I've experienced them as two different things, and I think they both are important and have value. And depending on where someone is in their career, I mean, someone could be so far along in their career, they don't need the sponsorship, but they could use a little knowledge transfer. They could maybe even use a little support. I mean, they could be a CEO in their 50s, having been in the professional space for several decades, but someone else has some knowledge around something that they're mentoring them. It, it it can look like various different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be the millennial benefiting from the Gen X or the baby boomer. It can look like a lot of different things at different places in your career. Gotcha. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. Our last section that we want to discuss is when it comes to association leaders who are reaching a certain age when they're thinking about retiring we're taking a step back from full-time work. Their organization is at risk of losing all the knowledge they've accumulated. And we've talked a little bit about knowledge transfer already and how it should really should be part of a culture. But what advice or what best practices do you notice when looking at this strictly through a generational lens? As baby boomers retire, um, how can older generations nurture leaders who are next in line? 
that a lot of organizations are facing that these days in the association space. And um, it, is, it is a critical question. And to your point, it is culture. And boards should be thinking about it well before that year of the last year of that person's contract. <laughs> they should be thinking about it in the long term and identifying whether they think that next leader is internal or not. I think that's a big question they need to ask themselves from the beginning. And have they done anything around thinking years ahead around that? But I, I also think that in the bigger scheme of things, as someone who has led a lot of organizational change, you have to trust that when an organization needs to go through a change, that if it's better for the organization, it's going to be better for everybody. It's going to be better for your members. It's going to be better for your board. And you have to trust that while it might be uncomfortable, it will be better for your staff. So if the board is needing to see an organizational change because the CEO is going to retire, I think it's super important for them to have plenty of time to step back and go, so who do we want to be? What does that look like? And let's back into what that leader needs to possess in their skill set. And I think that's a process they need time on. They need the space on. They might decide that that's a process they will learn a little bit as they go in the hiring process. And it, it, it deserves a lot more conversation that I can possibly lay out here in terms of all the steps that need to happen. Sometimes those things happen in the middle of a strategic plan. And they knew it. And it was part of the design. And they want to stay on track. And so it's about filling that slot. I've heard of boards that are going from a baby boomer CEO who is moving on, um, like into retirement, moving on, very planned, to jumping to the millennial CEO because they want that depth of shift to happen in their leadership. Now, I would like to think they also chose the best person for the role, whatever that looks like, but that they were very focused on having a different generation lead the organization and the message that sends to staff, the message that sends to the association members, knowing that, that might, they might be a great leader, they might have you know 10 plus years of experience under their belt, but it's not 25 plus years, so we're going to need to partner with that association CEO differently than we would have someone who has gotten several more decades under their belt in this kind of role. And, and those are all choices boards need to think about and, and do for themselves. But it's also, I think, important for boards to have some outside expertise around that, whether it's a recruiter, whether it's a consultant. I think that they need some support around that because particularly CEOs who have been with their organization for a long, long time, they haven't done this process in a long time. And so they've not had to look up and go, what's going on out there? <laughs> and so I think that's an important thing they just would need to build in and think about. Usually when people talk about generations, they talk about baby boomers versus millennials or baby boomers and millennials. They tend to skip over Generation X. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I'm a Gen X, so it's not like I forgot about us. But um, <laughs> you know what I think it is? It's the edges of contrast. I think people like to 100%. look at the black and the white of it. And Gen X is very much the gray between the two. 
I don't know that I'm the expert on generations whatsoever. I kind of like any association leader knows some things. And I also think that there are so large stereotypes around this. So I know a lot of millennials that are like boomers and they like paper and they like taking notes by hand. It runs the gamut. But I do think that it's the black and white of it all. And people, people like Elaine. This is the left side of my lane. This is the right side of my lane. I have the millennials and I have the boomers. And then somewhere in the middle are some Gen Xers and a little bit of like margins within the, the, the gaps of those age groups. And I think that because we have so many boomer leaders, they are flipping out about the young people. That's just what happens in any generation. They always kind of flip out about the young people. It's like, you know, we all kind of learned about how people flipped out over hippies and all those crazy young people. It's (laughs) like, it's not that big a deal, but every generation does it. I just think, so I think it will always be true. I think when Gen X is like the age of the current baby boomers, We'll be talking about the whatever they're called, those young people, and, and that will always be the conversation. I think what's different is not people. I think what's different is the world we live in. That my opinion is that we're, we're coming, we're in a different place in this world where technology creates different interactions, where culturally things have changed around our attention spans for content and what we expect out of an experience and how our time should look and what efficiency means and what communication should look like interpersonally and professionally and what knowledge transfer looks like. I mean, all of those things, I just think it's that the world is different. And so young people are learning it differently than the older people. And that rate of change is happening faster than ever in our history. And so that rate of change, we're going to end up like millennials in 10 seconds are going to be complaining about the generation before them and vice versa over and over because the rate of change in this world is happening at a pace that we just can't fathom. So I I think it's about that stuff, honestly. And then that trickles into blaming the workplace. I think that the generational conversation is an excuse to talk about difference. It's a good point. Just going the thought of an you know an association or any organization going from a leader who's from the baby boomer generation to a millennial that is that is quite the jump. Although it's important to start thinking about because I saw a statistic from the ASA East Foundation that blew my mind because I just I guess I don't think about it in the day to day. They said that 40% of association CEOs are either at or approaching retirement in the next few years. That's a lot of movement in the association world. It is. It's a lot of shift. I hear a polar shift potentially happening. I mean, that's a lot. And I think to the point earlier about how if change needs to happen, you have to trust that it's it's better for everyone. And so we have to trust that opportunity is possible in that shift over the coming years for associations and that all of the innovation that we're all seeking to build into the association space on a cultural level, on a structural level, on a diversity and inclusion level, all of those shifts that we're trying to address as leaders and taken like a fire hose and where does that fit in in the context of my budget and my org and my members needs and how do I get there for them I would like to think that is about um, in this 40 percent turnover is going to create opportunity for new thought and new ways in which we approach these kinds of things and I find it daunting and exciting at the same time but I'm going to choose to trust that it's it's the way it should be And I also really appreciate when we as association leaders have chances to come together and talk about that kind of thing. 
I think that statistic deserves its own processing, right? I mean, we could all yeah. sit around and go, so what should we be, right? Who are we going to be when we grow up? Just the premise of a change in the guard almost. I love when we have a chance to talk about those things at conferences and events where we can come together decide on what are some things we want to talk about that's important for the innovation of the space and who do we want to then be when we leave this meeting and how can we be the ambassadors of those conversations. I'm always curious about that. I I happened to attend um, an event called Association Charette that was launched and is facilitated and hosted by Lowell Applebaum. He's a consultant to associations, having been a leader of associations. And um, It was a fantastic opportunity to fundamentally create vision and have important discussions around these kinds of topics for innovation in the association field. And we talked a lot about culture and strategy. That was one of the ones that I was really particularly interested in and the whole thing about our members keep wanting a Netflix experience or an Amazon shopping cart, you know? I mean, sometimes it's not just culture, it's the digital thing. It's the, how how are we going to have the next cool app for our event? I mean, it, it goes into a lot of different ways. And I think um, as daunting as 40% can sound, we have to trust that it's for the betterment of, of the association world and that things that we have not even thought could manifest will have an opportunity to, and a space and a vacuum in which to be filled in a new kind of way. I think it's completely natural to want to create space for visioning and mm-hmm. goal setting the way you've described. I mean, in our culture, we do that typically once a year, and we call them New Year's resolutions. So That's right. Yeah, I totally understand it, what but- you're saying. It's, it doesn't indicate any kind of major deficiency on behalf of an individual leader or an association. So, no, it's not quite a matter of like, what are we going to do when the grown-ups leave the room? But no. it's, it's something natural that everyone goes through at every stage of life. Yeah. Okay, I've accomplished this so far, and here's where I am right now. Uh, but here's where I might like to be in the future. I know I don't want to stay here forever. So, yeah, let's talk about what's next. How can we become the leaders that they're going to need tomorrow? Because tomorrow we don't want to be in this same location. Even though we worked hard to get here in the first place, we know we need to keep moving. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we as association leaders are so mission driven and we we individually and collectively have a lot of why grounded inside of us. And I think when you build strategy and change and you're clear on your why, it works. It's grounded in something and it can have longevity and life and follow through. And to your point about New Year's resolutions, the goals that stick are the ones that have that grounding in the why. So that leader has that has all those cool tricks up their bag when it's grounded in the why and they have a follow-through and they constantly scan, plan, implement, and evaluate over and over and over again and are willing to adjust, it can have a longevity and a life. And that's what lasting change is about. And that is what I think we need to focus on building because otherwise you end up in the change for the sake of change cycle and you end up in the change fatigue cycle. And then you can go, well, see, that didn't work. (laughs) Those those New Year's resolutions, see, that didn't work. But when it is grounded in something really important, somehow, even if you're stumbling in the process, you're following through. And 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 you understand why it's important and you want to achieve the thing because it's an, it's got an importance and almost an emotional connection to the why. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, 
Simon Sinek and his whole Start With Why book and his famous TED Talk. I watch that probably twice a year to get myself grounded again. That's one of the all-time greatest kind of pieces of advice. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic one. Yep. Well, thank you so much. This was this is a topic that people love to talk about, hear about, and you've provided us with some really great feedback and thoughts just on culture and, and leadership and this monumental change that's coming in the association space, but also just on an individual level, you know, what makes a good leader and, and those types of things. So we really appreciate you, you coming back and joining us. We love having these chats. You've helped us create the space that you've talked about for leaders to think about what they're doing now and where they'd like to go and how they're going to get there. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, I appreciate being here. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Wow, that was another great conversation with Sharon. So Kelly, after talking with her about what makes a great leader, what do you think are the necessary factors? Is it the cool, fun, edgy practices Or is there more to it than that? I think there's more to it. Based on Sharon's expertise, I'm thinking that leadership development needs to be an authentic aspect of staff engagement woven into an association's culture. And as far as trends or proven practices in recruitment, onboarding, and employee investment, it's up to individuals to stay current on those. But the whole organization should make knowledge transfer between colleagues a standard practice. And your association should make sure that you are working toward an authentic culture of learning that, again, is tied to your organization's why and not just using random tricks to try and motivate your employees. Totally. I like what Sharon said about accepting and anticipating change and anticipating that you might need to change your plans about change. Sometimes a strategic plan that looks good on paper doesn't necessarily work out in practice, or maybe a planned leadership transition doesn't work out because life outside of the association does tend to happen, as we all know. Modeling for your team how to handle failure is part of demonstrating what a strong, adaptive, effective leader looks like. Associations shouldn't be afraid to pivot if new leadership or new leadership tactics don't end up working out the way they thought they would. Exactly. And also, I liked how she mentioned that an effective leader pours into others. Yeah. All of us have received career help at some point, whether it was someone advocating for you to be promoted into an open position or just someone introducing you to a new connection at a networking event. And there's so much value in the association space and in any business space in passing along that kindness to others. So let's support those who are coming up because we've all needed support to get where we are. And when we help out other leaders, we lift up the entire association community. Well said. I totally agree. Well, that does it for today. Do you want to hear a certain topic addressed on our podcast? Send us an email or a tweet. Our email address is associationadvisor at maileronline.com. And our Twitter handle is at associadvisor. That's A-S-S-O-C-A-D-V-I-S-E-R. This podcast is for association professionals like you. So let us know what you want to hear about that'll help you stay informed and always learning something new. That email again is associationadvisor at naileronline.com. Check out our recent features on Association Advisor. Our communications team has created some amazing resources about creating better member surveys and better strategic editorial plans. 
You'll definitely want to download these infographics and refer to them throughout the year as you plan and execute your member communication. Go to associationadvisor.com and search member surveys or search editorial content plan to find them. And we're also in the middle of a three-part series from Jeff DeCania about making your association future ready. You might not know what the future holds for your association, but you can be ready for whatever internal or external factors might affect it decades from now. And Jeff echoes the importance of collaboration and stewardship of future leaders that Sharon talked about with us here today. Jeff talks about system-wide stewardship, which is caring for and leading the system better than how it was found, and how this is critical to developing a shared and robust sense of responsibility for associations that thrive. Check out Jeff's articles under the category, The Duty of Foresight. Thank you to Naylor Association Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. Check us out at Naylor.com and learn how your association can achieve more with Naylor. Thanks for listening. Until next time.